Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. The historically high levels of Federal Reserve money creation and government spending during the peak COVID years continue to pump up asset inflation, consumer spending, savings balances, and employment data. That being said, as this government-inspired liquidity excess is working through the system, there are some major changes you should prepare for as these changes are occurring rather quickly with both jobs and market prospects. First of all, the Fed has continued to sound the drumbeat of higher for longer in terms of their plans for short-term interest rates. You should consider that they may not need to continue to keep raising the Fed funds rate to slow the economy. And I'll tell you why in a minute. In any event, the Fed would not continue to raise the federal funds rate after they take a pause, and they took a pause in June. So historically, that pause would indicate that we are at the end of the federal fund rate increases. But we don't have long to wait. We'll see at the end of this month if history remains unchanged or if the Fed decides to rewrite it. We may delay our next podcast for a few days in order to capture the July 25th, 26th Federal Reserve meeting results. In any event, don't forget about their additional tool that has the power to continue raising interest rates even without continuing increases in the Fed funds rate. That tool is their open market operations, in which they can buy and sell government securities, and they do, every day. The open market operations, and you can read that as continued Fed selling of their bond portfolio, is now on deck and can be expected to become more important than actually the federal fund's rate increases. Recall when COVID began in 2020, the Fed had approximately $4 trillion of government-related assets on their balance sheet. And over the COVID years, they increased this $4 trillion to almost $9 trillion at their peak several months ago. In effect, during the COVID years, this additional $5 trillion of open market purchases of government-related debt the Fed became consistently the largest buyer of Treasury securities, allowing the government to distribute trillions of dollars of stimulants to the American public while simultaneously keeping interest rates low due to these vast amount of open market purchases. Now that times have changed, and I think they have, and we've been threatened by runaway inflation due to all this money creation, the Fed has begun selling some of these securities into the open market. And their policy is to continue selling their portfolio little by little into the open market. Actually, it's not so little by little. So for now, we see the beginning of interest rate increases due to their open market operations, not Fed funds increases from now on. The problem is that the Fed has sold only a few hundred billion of the $5 trillion they bought, and they plan to sell much more this year. And that coincides just as the U.S. Treasury has to sell more debt to keep the federal government solvent. By the way, last month, the U.S. Treasury, after Congress made the deal they made, sold approximately $800 billion of debt, which only adds to increasing interest rate pressures upwards. Some estimates are the Fed plans to sell about $1 trillion over the next year, and at the same time, the U.S. Treasury will be selling another $1 to $2 trillion or more of new and refinanced federal debt. 
During COVID, the U.S. Treasury implemented a strategy to sell more short-term debt than long-term debt. Now, as a result, this short-term debt is quickly coming due and needs to be refinanced. Other countries issuing debt did not favor this U.S. strategy. They instead issued far more of their debt longer term, so they are not having to refinance nearly as much as the U.S. is. Bottom line, for the balance of 2023, expect large quantities of U.S. debt to hit the world markets and much larger, relatively speaking, than the debt of other countries. And this situation should also put downward pressure on the U.S. dollar, while at the same time keeping U.S. interest rates higher. I can give you some examples. Austria has about 17% of its total government debt maturing over the next two years. France has about 20% of their total debt maturing over the next two years. Germany has about 25% of their debt maturing over the next two years. The UK has about 15%. Well, the US has almost 45% of its total debt maturing over the next two years. So you can see the order of magnitude difference between the amount of newly issued and refinanced dollar government debt that's coming this year and next year. By the way, I should mention that the Federal Reserve members regularly express their views on interest rates via the so-called dot plots. And if you want to know more about that, you can look up or Google Federal Reserve dot plots, D-O-T hyphen P-L-O-T-S. And using those dot plots, it seems that the members are expecting interest rates to move up approximately another 1% or more over the remaining months of this year. If this comes about, short-term interest rates will approximate 6% by year-end versus about zero last year, and making borrowing much more expensive. Actually, From 5% to 6% is another 20% increase in borrowing costs for both businesses and those who opted to have adjustable rate mortgages. And by the way, of all the households who have bought houses in the past two years, over 60% are unable to make payments now. And that's without additional increases. Again, I'm talking about the short-term interest rates and adjustable rate mortgages. Since the Fed has changed from a major buyer to a major seller of U.S. Treasury debt, the U.S. Treasury must sell new and refinance debt to keep the government operational, and they have to do it. The spending plans are locked in, particularly Medicare, Social Security, defense, and so forth. And all of this is compounded by the fact that China and other countries have been selling U.S. government securities, not buying them, over the past few years, with the selling actually escalating this year. Who will buy these trillions of dollars of debt this year and next. Here are the possibilities as I see them. Number one, stocks will be sold by large global institutions to free up money to buy more bonds. The impact, a lower stock market, but possibly more stable interest rates, albeit at a higher level. Number two, the Fed will chicken out of their quantitative tightening policies and begin to aggressively buy more government securities. This they don't want to do. In brief, this would be translated to be a waffle and a change once again to keep the bond market operational. The impact, loss of confidence in the Fed, and a significant rebound in inflation. And all of this is in an environment where bank failures are, it's not so much that we have a lot of bank failures, it's that the total assets of the banks that have failed are at a record high versus the 2008-2010 Great Recession period, and certainly going back well beyond that. To go back further, the asset value of FDIC failed banks back in the Great Depression, 1929-1930 period, 
there were nearly 10,000 bank failures, and the total asset value as a percentage of gross national product of the failed banks was about 6.5%. That was the record in terms of bank failures in terms of the assets that became essentially worthless as a percentage of the gross national product, 6.5%. In the SNL crisis, about 2,000 SNL-related banks failed. And at that point, the total assets accounted for about 2.5% of the gross national product of the United States. When we move up to the Great Recession 2008, 2009, 2010 period, nearly 500 bank failures occurred with, again, about 2.5% of the gross national product in terms of failed assets. Recently, just in the past several months, we've reached, again, about 2.5%, but we've had only a small number of banks fail, like Silicon Valley Bank, Signature, First Republic, and so forth. Basically, three bank failures accounted for about 2.5% of today's gross national product. With the issues from the commercial real estate market we've commented on the past couple of podcasts, this is only going to go up for the rest of the year and next year. It's locked in that the commercial real estate amounts are going to be deadly for a number of banks, mainly the medium-sized regional and community banks. Additionally, because of the increase in interest rates, U.S. banks now have almost a trillion dollars of unrealized losses on their balance sheet. These are bonds that they bought when interest rates were down around 1%, 2 3%. And the value of these bonds have dropped as the interest rates have gone up in terms of the long bond to about 4%. As of now, the losses are approaching a trillion dollars that are unrealized. The banks are keeping these losses captured in what they call securities held to maturity, so they're not realizing the losses, but the losses are there on the balance sheet. There is a third theoretical possibility, which I think is not in the cards. Since the U.S. will not cut back on spending, can you imagine Congress actually cutting back on spending? They call cutting back increasing spending at a lower rate. But anyway, since the Congress will not cut back on spending to balance the budget, and balancing the budget is near impossible at this point, there is really no possibility of reducing the large amounts of future government debt that will be thrown into the market this year, next year, and for several future years maybe many future years. Spending is out of control domestically, and a growing war will guarantee even more spending is in the future, not a spending reduction. I'm betting the Fed will not chicken out unless they see a real possibility of a future depression, and this will take at least a year to gauge, especially with the flawed and heavily biased government reporting of the CPI and employment data while totally ignoring future liabilities they've already committed to in Social Security and Medicare payments. What do I mean by this statement? Long-time listeners know, but I'll summarize again quickly. Number one, true inflation, that is a constant market basket of goods and services, has been and continues to be approximately twice or more the reported CPI, consumer price increases. Real inflation is not 4% or 5%. In reality, it's 8 to 10% or more. Number two, likewise, true unemployment is likely to be approximately twice the official rate. Unemployment in the full-time workforce is not in the 3 to 4% range. It's likely in the 6 to 8% range or even higher. 
Number three, the government has been reporting healthy payroll growth. But here are a few quick thought starters. First of all, most of the payroll growth is in the area of part-time jobs. Secondly, government jobs in recent months have accounted for about 60,000 of the headline payroll increases. Thirdly, the seasonal bar, seasonality, was actually lowered by 100,000 workers. I'm not going to go too much into the weeds, but let me just say that an important part, which we've covered in prior podcasts, is the so-called birth death rate of businesses. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually adds employment payroll based upon their assumption of many new businesses that are started. But of course now, and in past months recently, the issue has been increasing bankruptcies. It hasn't been a track record of increasing new businesses. So a lot of the so-called optimistic data or healthy data as reported is really, in my view, not true. And it's been manipulated to show a healthy economy when we just have essentially the opposite. And by the way, the government's continuing to pump money into the economy with a program many of us have ignored or forgotten about, and that is the employee retention credit. You know, people still ask, can I apply for the employee retention credit still? And the answer is yes. If your business recovered from a substantial decline in gross receipts and you did not already claim the credit, you can still apply. Businesses have three years from the date of their original tax return filing or two years from the date of the tax was paid, whichever is later, to file for the employee retention credit. Why do I mention that? Because each month the IRS is distributing 20 to $30 billion to business owners through this employee retention credit. That's a quarter of a trillion, getting close on the high side to a third of a trillion dollars, a year of additional government stimulation. And no one really talks about that. But that's a lot of money, and it goes to people who generally are in the higher income quintile. And these people generally have a propensity to consume at their additional income at that level of 40 to 50%. That's a fancy way to say that there's a major stimulus that continues on, benefits the wealthy or high net worth income earners, and filters into the economy through higher consumption. Let's shift gears to the international picture. South Africa will host the 15th BRICS summit at the Santon Convention Center in Santon, Johannesburg, South Africa, from the 22nd to the 24th of August, so in about six weeks. To accommodate Russia, given the Western-sponsored sanctions and declaration of Putin as a war criminal, the Department of International Relations in cooperation in South Africa issued a notice in the Government Gazette that diplomatic immunities and privileges for the upcoming BRICS summit to be held in Johannesburg will be in place. And as a result of that, it's likely that Russia will have their delegation and quite possibly Putin will go there. But the BRICS summit is an annual meeting of the leaders of the five member countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And the meeting is this year focused on formalizing the creation of a gold-backed currency to challenge the dollar. As a backdrop, many countries have aggressively added to their gold reserves over the past year or two, including China, Russia, and India, as well as a number of oil-producing and non-oil-producing emerging countries. As promised in our prior podcasts, we are introducing an overlooked area for potential future investment. Given both our stagflationary Western economies 
and new formal challenges to the dollar and the creation of essentially a bipolar world where we have the Western economies with possibly a few oil producing countries and then we have the BRIC countries with even more oil producing countries and likely more Latin American countries involved in the BRICS block trading block. So this is bound to create more challenges for the dollar, but these challenges will take years to evaluate. So no one should feel threatened today or tomorrow, but we want to point out that raw materials producers, copper, iron, ore, battery metals, agricultural commodities, crude oil, natural gas, and so forth, have not participated in the long-term bull market we've seen in stocks that have been pretty much ignored by all investors for years. So now it may be time to pay attention to them. So in the next couple of podcasts, we're going to focus on the raw materials impact of both the bipolar world coming up, as well as the likelihood that we will get through this recessionary period and begin planning for another growth era. No matter how bad the news has been over the past few years and how bad it is now, we need to start anticipating what will be the next moves in the stock and bond markets. And that will be what we will uncover and begin to discuss in our next podcast. Stay well, be careful, stay out of debt as much as you can, and be conservative with your financial investments. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.